0: I want to just introduce to, uh, to you our speaker for today. Uh, his name is David Gardner, and he is currently the associate Pref- uh, an associate professor of systematic theology at Westminster in Glenside, Pennsylvania. He is also serving as the vice president of the seminary. Uh, Dr. Gardner, before coming to Westminster, he served as an ordained teaching elder in, uh, at the Proclamation Church in uh, Bryn Mawr. Uh, just uh, I think, nearby here, uh, he is an ordained teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church of America, and he' here on this Palm Sunday to share with us god 's Word. So Dr. Garner, would you come forward? Good morning. Encourage you to keep your Bible open to the text that we just read as that's going to be the focus of our attention this morning on this Palm Sunday. Before we study this passage together, I'd like to ask you to bow your head with me and let's pray together. As we gather This morning, mighty God in heaven, we come, each of us, stained by sin, each of us living lives that were in desperation and by your son Jesus and his spirit, you have granted us forgiveness of sin and salvation. And I pray, O God, this morning that we as your people would hear what your Spirit says to the churches. Would you give us hearts that embrace by faith the great news of the Gospel. If there is any in our midst, O God, this morning that does not yet know this Jesus of whom we have sung and whom we proclaim together this morning, would you grant them the eyes of faith, We would ask these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen. If we're honest, sometimes it just doesn't seem worth it, does it? Sometimes faith just doesn't seem to work all that well. It seems like when we read the Bible or listen to a sermon that sometimes there's this radical disconnect between our own life circumstances, our sufferings, our sorrows, our sadnesses, and the hope that the Bible lays before us. The good news, as it were, just doesn't seem so good. Many of us live by what I sometimes describe as an IRA faith. We make deposits of faith today With the hope that at some point in the future it might just pay off. That investment of faith is one that we hope will produce great benefit in the future. And then as we combine the incongruities of our world, the injustices, the perception that the gospel is a bright hope for tomorrow, but what about today? What about now? Many of us love Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What we really mean is maybe one day the Lord will be my shepherd, because I really want. If you are like me, there are times when our own sufferings, sadnesses, and sorrows can consume us. We can begin to believe that the gospel is distant from us, and somehow we we believe in a Jesus of tomorrow, but not the Jesus of today. It is what we might describe as the tyranny of a tomorrow Jesus. As we come to our text this morning in Hebrews chapter 4, I want you to realize that what the writer of Hebrews by the ministry of the Spirit lays before us is a Jesus who is wholly relevant today. And I want us to see this morning how that is so. How is it so that the resurrection hope of Jesus meets me here and now? How is it that the one who was humble and mounted upon a donkey, as we see in Matthew 21, going from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem with people singing Hosanna, how is that humbled king relevant to my today? Three ways in these three verses we see the call to rest today in Jesus. Let's explore that together. Let's look at verse 14 again of chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession Here, the author of Hebrews introduces Jesus, the Son of God, as a great high priest. Well, we don't have time to unpack all the significance of that in the Bible, let alone, or in in Hebrews, let alone in the Bible as a whole. But let me just remind you, as you think about the Old Testament, as the prophets were, were given by God, they were the ones who were given to declare the Word of God to the people of God. The priests, on the other hand, were those that were to serve in a capacity of intercession, bringing the people to God. The prophets brought the word of God to the people. The priests brought the people to the God of heaven. The old covenant, which is put in stark contrast to that which has come to us in Christ Jesus... I wanna remind you what it was like. I think sometimes we read our Bible stories, our Bible lessons, we teach them to our children, and we develop a little bit of a sentimental orientation towards the Old Testament and the stories as they are often called. But I wanna remind you that the Old Covenant law prescribed a very bloody, messy work of redemption. The work of the priest was, was, well, it was bloody and it was stinky. There was an ongoing need for the sacrifice of one animal upon another, day in, day out. It was continual. And in fact, the, the work of the priest, while his work was never done, his life was because every priest of every generation of the old covenant died as one who needed the very sacrifices that he offered. This is put for us in stark contrast to the Jesus that is laid before us here, the one who is the great high priest. He is the one whose priesthood is of an entirely different order. He is the one, if we were to read the opening verses of chapter one of Hebrews, he is the very one who has been sent from God. He is indeed God himself, God in human flesh. And he, by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection now reigns forever. His priesthood is of an entirely different order. Why? Like the Old Testament priest, think about his life, day in and day out, sacrifice upon sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice is once for all. It put all those Old Testament sacrifices to rest. He was the Lamb of God, whose very own blood was adequate for your sin and mine. But the grave could not hold him in, even as we celebrate this week. Indeed, as we see his, as Hebrews chapter 7 describes, his life was an indestructible one. And he, as Hebrews seven twenty-five tells us, lives forever to intercede for us. Here is a high priest a priest unlike any other. His priesthood was complete. His work was final. It was decisive. It was once for all. Well, we see that actually in shorthand in the opening line of verse 14. Look at it again. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. How easily we pass right by that phrase. But don't miss it. This is a glorious shorthand for the description of the excellence of Christ. That he has indeed, as we see in chapter six of Hebrews, he has blasted into the very holy of holies as our forerunner. He has gone where, to borrow the language of Star Trek, no man has gone before. And here we see this Jesus laid before us as the one who has passed through the heavens. Look back at chapter two for me, uh, with me for just a minute. This Jesus, who we see in chapter one, has come from heaven. Look at verse 10, for it was fitting, chapter two, verse 10, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that, he is, the, that is, he is the creator of all things, in bringing many sons to glory, should, be, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You see, Jesus, as we see later in this text, has fully identified with us. He has taken on flesh and blood. He has come as our Redeemer. He has come as our Mediator. He is the one on whom the wrath of God is outpoured so that it is not outpoured on you either now or in all eternity. This Jesus, look at verse 17 of chapter two. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Here's a Jesus sent from the hallowed halls of heaven who has come and, and, and rubbed shoulders with us. He has come, as John's gospel says, and tabernacled with us. He has dwelt with us. He has taken on flesh and blood. Paul will say in Romans chapter 8 that he took on the likeness of sinful flesh so that he might fully identify with you today. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Note that at the core of the argument of Hebrews, this great high priest who has passed through the heavens has done so so that his victory will be relevant to you today. Notice that the author of Hebrews is concerned about us here and now. He has suffered so that he might meet us in our suffering. He identifies with you. The author of Hebrews is saying here in verse 14 of chapter 4, rest in his victory. He has passed through the heavens, the one who has come from heaven to earth taken on flesh and blood, dwelt with us, become our redeemer, become the one through whom we are reconciled to God. This very one has won the victory. He has passed through the heavens and lives ever to intercede for you today. The author of Hebrews wants you to know that a gospel that is only relevant to tomorrow is a gospel that is entirely irrelevant. Jesus here is laid before us as the one who has passed through the heavens in victory. The author of Hebrews, by the word of the Spirit, is telling us that we are to rest, rest in his victory today. Having blasted through the heavens... Having been identified here as the great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, look at the end of verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. This notion of confession, we've done it this morning, haven't we? We've already confessed our faith using the historic Apostles' Creed. We have declared this Jesus this morning, born of a virgin suffered under Pontius Pilate. And he's described as the one who died and was raised and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is seated as your relevant intercessor, as your victor. That is the Jesus whom we are to confess. This notion of confession Why do we do that on Sunday morning and Sunday evening as we gather for worship? We confess because God's people are called to gather. And as we gather, there is an encouragement of speaking together. That's what confession means. It means to to say the same thing as someone else. Confession is an agreement between us about Jesus. But it's something more, and I don't want you to miss this. Confession is not merely our agreement with one another about Jesus. You know what else it is? It is our agreement with God the Father about Jesus. According to Hebrews, the Father has looked at this Son and described Him as the excellent one. As the great high priest who is of an entirely different order than the Aaronic priesthood of the Old Testament. You see, when we confess our faith, as we did this morning, we are saying, yes, Father, we agree with you about your son. So in that gathering of confessing our faith, we are not only in agreement with one another about Jesus, we're saying, Father, we agree with you about him too. That's what confession is. We are to to rest in his victory. He is the one who has devastated your foe and mine. He is the one who has overwhelmed Satan's sin and death by his own efficacious life, death, and resurrection. He is, as we read in chapter 2, verse 10, he is the one who is leading, bringing many sons to glory. We sang about it this morning already. It is this Jesus who is literally the pioneer of our salvation. He is the one who is blazing the trail to heaven. He is the one who has already entered into the Holy of Holies so that he might go before us there. But... He doesn't just wait for us there. He walks with us here by the ministry of his outpoured spirit as we confess our faith in Jesus, the Son of God, the great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, as we see in chapter 7 and chapter 10 of Hebrews. We are agreeing with God the Father, not only that Jesus has died, was buried, and raised on the third day, but that he lives today ever to intercede for us. He has passed through the heavens, which guess what means for you? You will too. Rest in his victory. For today, there's more. You may be thinking in your own mind, okay, I'm to confess Jesus. He has already walked through suffering unto glory. He's already ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's in heaven, and I'm here. How can he really relate to me in my own wilderness wandering? How can he relate to me in my own suffering? How can Jesus really identify with me? If I'm to rest in his victory, what is the relevance of his victory for mine, is the question. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It, Is clear from reading the book of Hebrews that our first century brothers and sisters weren't a lot different than we are. They found themselves disconnected in some way from Jesus in their own minds and hearts. They were tempted to go back to the old ways. They were in a context of dispersion, they were separated from their families separated from their homeland, found themselves in places of wandering of which they did not want, found found themselves in places of wilderness, separated from those whom they loved, Many of them suffered financial strife, family strife, legal strife. They were dealing with dishonest and manipulative people. They were disillusioned with the government in the first century. And all this made them wonder, how is it possible that Jesus is relevant to me today if he's all that the apostles said that he was if he is indeed the the fulfillment of all the promises of God in the Old Testament, the ultimate question for me is, why does my life stink? Why is it so difficult? In part, what is laid before us here in verse 15 is a, a summary that Jesus has already traversed the wilderness. And he is blasted into heavens, but in his blasting into heaven, he still sympathizes with us here and now. Look again at the text. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Jesus fully knows your pain. The one who lives today interceding for you is one who has become one with you. And the one who intercedes for you in heaven is the one who has sent his spirit as a deposit, as a down payment that God not only will not renege but cannot renege. And this Jesus is the one who is described as the one who sympathizes with us in our weakness. Now, you may be thinking, all right, I'm listening to this preacher say that Jesus sympathizes with me, but I don't get it. After all, Jesus is God. How can Jesus as God really relate to me? To whatever degree that you are tempted to think that Jesus does not identify with your suffering, the Jesus whom you confess is not the Jesus of Scripture. What the author of Hebrews, consistent with what the entirety of the Old and New Testaments lays before us, that Jesus is, as we sang this morning, the one true last Adam. He is really one with us. To whatever degree your notion of Jesus' deity makes you downplay his humanity, you are not confessing the Jesus of the Bible. He fully identifies with you because he is one with you. He has taken on flesh and blood He has taken on real suffering. Hebrews chapter 5 early or later on here will tell us that he has learned obedience through the things which he has suffered. Luke chapter 2, verse 52, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Here is the great covenant son, the promised son, the one in whom the Father is well pleased. Because he, as man, has suffered and yet obeyed. He has suffered and in his suffering he has obeyed. You see, Jesus identifies with you because he is one with you. Now you may say, okay, that's fine. I'll accept that. I'll confess that, Jesus. Jesus. But what about this? Jesus, according to this text, never sinned. So he doesn't really get me, does he? He he doesn't really identify with me because he's never really sinned. He doesn't know my suffering like I suffer. Mine is different than his. Let me ask you a question. At what point does temptation reach its pinnacle? After you've given into it, or when you remain steadfast in opposition to it. You see, the reason why Jesus can wholly identify with you in your suffering is precisely because he never sinned. It is that the temptation is at its climax. When it reaches its pinnacle and we still say no to it. Jesus, every single time he faced temptation, always said yes to his father and no to sin. And it is for that reason he fully sympathizes with all of your weakness. The author of Hebrews says, rest in his victory for today but rest also in his sympathy for today. He fully identifies with you now. I don't know your circumstances. He does. I may not even fully be able to identify with your circumstances. He does. I noticed that Grace Chung is one of the missionaries that your church supports Grace is now serving in Bulgaria, where my family and I served a number of years. We came back in 2006. When we moved to Bulgaria, the city of Sofia, where Grace now lives, is very different than it was when I lived there. Um, Desperately still in need of the gospel. But when my wife and I and our six children moved to Bulgaria, we had uh, the place where we lived actually required that we own a vehicle. So I was searching in this city of about two and a half million people for a vehicle that would hold eight people. I found three, not three different models, but three different vehicles. At this particular time in Bulgaria, you could not find a new car, you had to buy a used car, and there's a few things that you knew about the used car before you even drove it off the lot. Number one, you knew that all of the good parts in that used car had been taken out and bad parts had been replaced. Secondly, you also knew that your odometer had been rolled backwards. You just didn't have any idea how far backwards. When I purchased the vehicle, I actually could locate right away the hole that had been drilled in the dashboard to roll the odometer back. Purchased this vehicle, drove it off the lot, made it way back to our, made, our way, made my way back to our new home. A Couple of days later, I took the vehicle out to the other side of the city, to an area that I had not been before. And I came to an intersection in this large vehicle, and it was still to this day one of the strangest intersections I've ever seen in my life. But there was something that looked like a stoplight. So I thought I should probably stop, so I did. After the light turned green, I decided I should go. My car did not agree. As I hit the accelerator, the engine died. Now mind you, I've only been in Bulgaria at this point for about two weeks. I do not yet know the language. I've learned the alphabet, but that's all I know. Horns are blaring at me. People all around me are screaming in a language that I do not yet understand. That was probably a blessing in that moment. And I sat there and tried to figure out what to do. I couldn't get the vehicle started. Then it dawned on me that just a few days prior, I had purchased a cell phone. So I thought I would apply the principle from the Great American Game Show. I thought I would call a friend. So I phoned a friend. Another missionary in town and I said here's my situation I'm stuck here in this intersection he said well where are you I don't know well he responded I'll pray for you click <laughs> that was the end of that conversation then I heard this sound ding 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 ding-ding, and I realized that the place where I was sitting, part of what made this intersection so bizarre is that I was not only sitting in the middle of the street, I was also sitting in the middle of a trolley track, and the cars behind me parted as this trolley came up behind me, blaring his horn, along with his ding-ding. My car still didn't start. Here I am sitting... At this intersection, horns blaring, there are signs all around me, street signs, restaurant signs, store signs, of which none could I read, people all around me with whom I could not communicate. I'm surrounded by people, surrounded by information, and I have never felt so alone in all of my life. Some of you this morning feel like that's right where you're parked to. You're surrounded by information. You may have a lot of people in your life that even as they seek to express care for your suffering, they do not speak your language. Somehow, with their well-intended words, they fall flat in your ears and don't capture your heart. What the author of Hebrews is reminding us this morning is that you have a great sympathizer who knows your heart language, who knows your suffering. He even knows your suffering better than you know your suffering. For he has suffered in every way in our weakness, tempted as we are, yet without sin. The author of Hebrews by the ministry of the Holy Spirit is saying to us, rest in his victory today, but also rest in his sympathy for you today. You see, this Jesus, this very one who got on the back of a donkey to go into Jerusalem to become king, humbled, humiliated, murdered, And yet the grave could not hold him. And as he had raised from the dead on that third day, he conquered sin, Satan, and death. And as the resurrected Son of God, he now reigns forever as your Lord and as your King, one who fully sympathizes with you today. Rest. Rest. In his victory today, rest in his sympathy. Do not believe that the gospel is only relevant to tomorrow. A Jesus that is relevant only for tomorrow is a Jesus that is eternally irrelevant. If you do not have one who is a sympathizer, you do not have one who is a savior. The author of Hebrews says, this Jesus... This one who has passed through the heavens. This one of whom the Father looks down from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Why? Because he speaks your language right where you are today. Rest in his victory today. Rest in his sympathy Today, finally and more quickly, look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Note how this throne of King Jesus is described. It is the throne of grace. And as we have seen already, summarized for us in these two prior verses, this Jesus who has succeeded and is the victor, this Jesus who is the sympathizer, has in his own being everything that you need. And he delights to pour out his blessing upon. He delights to meet your need. He delights to feed you when you are hungry, to be the very living water for your parched soul. All provision, infinite provision, rests in Christ Jesus. Why do we go with confidence? Because He is the sympathizing Son. We approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace now in our time of need. Not only are we to rest in his victory, not only are we to rest in his sympathy, but we are to rest in his adequacy. Fully adequate for you. Everything that you need, Peter will say, for life and godliness is found in this Jesus this one who has passed through the heavens. Some of you may have had opportunity to visit the second largest waterfall in the world that's not too far from us here, Niagara, made up of three different falls. According to documentation, there are 750,000 gallons per second that flow over Niagara. Those of you who are math fiends, that's 64 billion 800 million gallons per day, you need 64 ounces. The blessings and provisions of God in Christ are Niagara-like. They're overwhelming. There's a deluge of grace that pours over God's people abundantly more than you could ever need found in this Jesus. Yet, how often is it that we go to the Niagara of Jesus' adequacy? with a teeny, tiny teacup. And we go there and think, we'll just get a little taste. And we wonder why our souls are so parched. We wonder why we anguish in our suffering rather than relishing the adequacy of Jesus' provision. We must boldly go to the throne of grace and repent of our teacup confessions of Jesus Christ and stand under the shower of his abundant grace that he pours out upon his people. We rest in Jesus' adequacy Because our final Savior is our fully sympathizing one. Who because of him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. To go to the cross to die. It was at the cross that Jesus Christ crushed the power of sin. That he overwhelmed Satan and his forces and captured you and me in his loving embrace, and nothing shall ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Dear brothers and sisters, let us not stand before Jesus and wonder if he is adequate. Let us not confess a Jesus who is Niagara-like in his blessing and come before him and treat him as though there is no living water there. This Christ, this Son of God is the one who has passed through the heavens. Let us hold fast to our confession of this Jesus, The one who sympathizes with your weakness. The one who has been tempted in every way like you and yet without sin. And because of that, he fully identifies with you. And let us turn to that Jesus and delight in the deluge of grace that is found in him alone. Rest in his victory today. Rest in his sympathy today and rest in his adequacy. For Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray.